Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Now, when I say conversion, by conversion, I simply mean three things. I mean, when someone turns away from the path they're on and they trust in Jesus for salvation and they follow him. Turn, trust, and follow. That is what the Bible means when it says conversion. And if, uh, if we as um, New City Fellowship are going to seek a greater worship of Jesus, that includes what we talked about last week, which is a reorientation of ourselves to Jesus. But if we want to see a greater worship of Jesus, we want to see more people convert to becoming Christians. We want to see more people turn to Jesus, trust in Jesus, and follow him. We want to see more worshipers come to know Jesus. So I want to ask you, is, is that something that you want? Do you want to see your friends and family and your coworkers and neighbors, do you want to see them come to know Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not asking you if you want people to get a little religion. That's not what I'm asking I'm asking if you want people to know and worship Jesus like you do. Ray Ortland puts it this way. Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, says that his mantra is, I'm an idiot, but my future is incredibly bright, and anybody can get in on this. Jesus is for everybody. I'm an idiot, but my future is incredibly bright. Anybody can get in on this. Anybody can come to Jesus. But let me, let me frame it just a little bit differently. If you want someone to become a Christian and they asked you that, like they looked at you and said, hey, do you want me to become a Christian? What would you say to them? It's kind of an awkward question to have someone ask you so directly. And I'm sure you kind of go, well, what do I say? What would I say if that person I've been praying for finally asked me, do you want me to become a Christian? Um, now, we're, we're getting anxious, and the anxiety comes from, i got to say the right thing. i got to respond the right way. Or maybe we get anxious because we're afraid that people will categorize us because of our faith. Do you ever have that happen, like a conversation comes up about what you believe, and they go, oh, I know who you are. I know what you think about politics, or I know what you think about homosexuals. I know who you are. And you're like, well, wait a minute. And rather than sort of explaining who Jesus is or saying, yes, I'm a Christian, you you tend to say, well, I'm not that type of Christian, right? You go on the defensive. But today, I, I want to help your confidence a little bit that if someone were to say to you, hey, do you want me to become a Christian? That you would look at them right in the eyes and you would say, yes, I want you to become a Christian. I'm an idiot but my future is incredibly bright and anybody can get in on this because of what Jesus has done for us. In the story we're looking at today, we come across the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26. Now Acts is only 28 chapters long and so we're towards the end of the book of Acts and towards the end of Paul's ministry and he basically gets asked that question. Paul, do you want me to become a Christian. Now, he's been in prison for a couple years in Caesarea, and uh, these two local governors, Felix and Festus, don't really know what to do with Paul. 
Because although he's not really broken the law, his views on spirituality, his Christianity is troublesome. It's causing problems. And so Felix and Festus, the governors, the local governors, bring him before the Jewish king, King Agrippa II. And this hearing that Paul is going to go before, it's not like he's just getting a one-on-one with the king. This has all the look of a Johnny Cochran trial. There is pomp, there is people, military generals are showing up, the influences, influences of the city are all there as King Agrippa is going to hear out what Paul has to say. And King Agrippa tells Paul, well, go ahead and speak. Tell us what you believe. Give a defense of these accusations against you. And Paul's very respectful of the king. He's not a jerk at all, but he tells his life story. And he basically says, look, um, I was a Pharisee. And by that, he means I was a devout Jew. Like I believed the Jewish account of who God was. And I followed God's law as much as I could. In fact, I followed it so much so that when this Jesus guy got popular, I felt the need to stop that movement. So I persecuted Christians because I thought I was being a good Jew. But then something happened on this road to Damascus. I was converted. I turned, I trusted, and I followed. I turned to Jesus, I trusted Jesus, and I followed Jesus. Here he says, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while he's talking to King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you, Saul, as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Again, what we're hearing from Paul, who used to be called Saul, is how he was converted. He's telling King Agrippa, Jesus showed up and this is what he said to me. But even as Paul says that, we learn something. We learn what is happening when someone is converted. We learn what happens when someone turns, trusts, and follows Jesus. If we look at verse 18 again, if you can go to the next slide, we look at verse 18 again. Jesus tells Paul, I am sending you to them. To do what? To open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Again, this is Jesus telling Paul what it means to be converted. And he uses some strong language. He says, converted from darkness to light. In darkness, you cannot see. In darkness, you are lost. In darkness, you don't know anything. But light, when light comes, you can see. And the thing about light is it doesn't really come from you. It more, it happens to you. You become aware. And Jesus puts conversion in the stark terminology of darkness to light. But even more so, he says, the power of God overcomes the power of Satan. Now, I know that 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 seems a little offensive in our culture to talk about people being under the power of Satan, but that's what Jesus says. Jesus says that people that don't know him are under the power of Satan, that there are unseen spiritual realities in this world that enslave people. Darkness to light, the power of Satan, the power of God. But when someone comes to know Jesus, when they convert, their sins are forgiven. They receive the forgiveness of sins. They don't earn the forgiveness of sins. They don't barter for the forgiveness of sins. Their sins are forgiven. It is something they receive because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Jesus was put on the cross for us and the punishment for our sins was placed on him. And when we convert, when we turn, when we trust and we follow him, all of our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven and we join a new family. A share among those who are sanctified by faith in me, we become part of the people of Jesus. This crazy lot we call the church, where we're discovering a new way to be human together. That's what happens when someone converts. That's what happens when someone turns and trusts and follows. And my question this morning to you is, do you want that to happen to your friends and family? Do you want them to go from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God? Do you want their sins to be forgiven? Do you want them to have a share among the people of Jesus? Do you want them to turn, to trust, and to follow? Eternity hangs in the balance. Hell is real. The new heavens and the new earth are real. Do we want our friends and family to convert? Now, I know, I know that's offensive in our culture. You're proselytizing, John. You're trying, you're manipulating people. Okay, hold on one second. Everybody believes something about the spiritual realm. And everybody believes that other people should believe what they believe. Even if I say, hey, don't put so much pressure. Everybody can believe what they believe. I still have a spiritual belief that I'm trying to convince you of. At least Christians are honest about it. At least as Christians, we say, hey, here's what we believe. And we want you to believe this. We, we want people to be forgiven. Whether you're a conspiracy theorist or an evangelical destruction, deconstructionist or a Christian nationalist or a secular humanist, everyone believes something about the spiritual realm and believes other people should believe what they believe. At least Christians are honest about it. We want to see people convert, to turn, to trust, 
and to follow Jesus. And when we call people to that, we're not calling people to just change their mind about a viewpoint on the world. We're calling people to turn and trust and follow a person who has defeated sin and death, who took your place on the cross, who rose from the dead and invites you into the family of God. See, see when conversion happens, it's Jesus happening to people. Do we want Jesus to happen to those we love? When someone converts, that's what happens. But if we could break it down even further, what's necessary for that process? How, how does someone actually convert? Well, in verse 19 and 20, Paul says to King Agrippa, he says, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, Jesus told me some stuff. It's not up to me anymore. I gotta follow Jesus. Instead, in, instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all of the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, here they go, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. Uh, we've already said it, that they should repent. There's the turn. Repent equals turn. You turn from your path to face God. Literally, Paul, as he himself is converted, is on a path, and Jesus stops him and puts him on another path. But each of our lives is like that. We can't keep going the same direction. If we're truly to know Jesus, we must repent. We must turn. Paul says that they should repent and turn to God. Being a Christian isn't just stopping doing bad things. Rather, it's turning away from the places in your life where you're trying to run your life and turning to God and trusting him for salvation. And then it says this weird phrase. It says, doing works worthy of repentance. Now, what that means is not that we set out to prove ourselves and our salvation, but rather we continue on the path that we're going on, not following our own way, but following God's way. And of course, we'll veer off that path at times. Of course, we'll slow down on, on that path at times, but that's why we have each other. I don't know anyone in here that's walking the Christian life perfectly, that's walking in repentance perfectly. We all need each other's help to follow God rather than following ourselves. See, we're all called to this change of direction, this new path, this new kind of lifestyle. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to turn and trust and follow Jesus. And that creates that tension for us where we look around and we see that there's a lot of people we love who have not turned to Jesus, who have not trusted Jesus, who have not followed Jesus. And that can give us a burden for them. And sometimes that burden is quite exhausting. Sometimes it's hard to continue forward in life and continuing to care. So, so I find that people usually do one of two things. When people see that they want their friends and family to come to know Jesus, they either become pushy or they become passive. So pushy, like maybe argumentative. Like, I don't want you to come to this on your terms. I'm gonna push you into this. I remember in college, 
at Auburn University, we had this area, I think it was called the concourse, and it was this big grassy field. And uh, if you were a pastor, you could come and preach on the concourse to the students. But all the guys who came and preached should not have been preaching. Because like the first line of each of their sermon was, everybody's going to hell. And, uh, and like, I never saw anyone convert. It's not that that's not true. It's not that hell's not a real reality. It's just that these guys were pushy and argumentative. And rather than learning how to be inoffensive as people and let the message of the gospel offend, they themselves were offensive because they were argumentative. But I find another way that we can be pushy as Christians is when we're compassionless to other people. In the show Seinfeld, there's this one character named Putty, David Putty. I don't know if anybody watches, ever watched Seinfeld, but it's Elaine's boyfriend, and he's supposed to be religious. And they always had these very funny dialogues. Elaine is not religious, and Putty is religious. And so Elaine says at one point, so Putty, David, you're pretty religious. And he says, I try. And she goes, so is it a problem that I'm not religious? And he goes, not for me. And she goes, well, why not? And he goes, well, I'm not the one going to hell. <laughs> so this creates this dialogue. Later on, she goes, David, don't you care? I'm going to hell. And he goes, it's going to be rough. <laughs> and she looks at him and says, you should try to save me. And there's something funny even in that show. That's not a Christian show, but, but we see in David this, this pushiness where he's compassionless about even his own girlfriend and seeing her come to know Jesus. I find we can like come to this place where we begin to care about other people and that, that pushes us to either be argumentative or we just sort of check out and don't care. That's pushy. But I tend to think more of us fall on the passive side. Um, when we wanna see someone become a Christian, we become passive. I've seen people do this where they, they sort of pretend like they might have a dearly loved one that they want to see come to know Jesus and they sort of pretend in their mind that they're already a Christian. Well, I heard him pray at dinner one time on Thanksgiving five years ago and so I really think they might be a Christian or they walked an aisle 17 years ago. Don't fool yourself, right? It's better to admit when someone's not a Christian in your own mind than rather than look for things that aren't really there where there's no fruit, there's no real love of Jesus, there's no real love of Jesus' people. Uh, we shouldn't pretend because we're just being passive. We also shouldn't ignore. I find it's really, really hard to care about someone who doesn't know the Lord and then keep praying for them and keep praying for them and keep praying for them. You just lose heart. You get discouraged. You go, God, I wanna see something. And it's almost easier to ignore the spiritual reality of eternity because we just can't stomach it. But to ignore the spiritual realities is to fall again into passivity. And sometimes in that passivity, we just hide because we're afraid of the backlash. Several years ago, I was at a Hollywood Chamber of Commerce business mixer, and it was like speed dating for businesses. So you sat down next to someone and you started you start talking to them like, what's your business? What's your business? And like, you'd got a minute. And the idea was maybe you'll find someone that you can do business with. But I sat down next to this guy and I was like, what do you do? Oh, cool. Great to hear, you know, 
He's like, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor at a church. He's like, you're a pastor at a church? Like in front of everyone. This guy was livid. And, and, and for me, I was like, that made me kind of second guess myself after that. Because he didn't even get to know me. He didn't really know my name, but he was angry. And if I'm honest, that made me want to be passive when it comes to sharing our faith. But what, what we learn from this passage today is not pushiness, it's not passivity, it's persuasion. Bold, reasoned persuasion. Here Paul has every reason to be cowardly and timid in front of King Agrippa II. He doesn't know what's going to happen to his life, but he knows what this family has done. See, King Agrippa II was part of Herod's family. And King Agrippa I was the one who killed James, the brother of John, in Acts 12. And Herod Antipas, the father before him, was the one who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. And Herod the Great, the one before him, was the one that the wise men visited and said, hey, there's this king coming, Herod. And Herod's like, oh, tell me, because I want to worship him, when really he wanted to kill the baby Jesus. So here Paul has every reason not to be bold, and yet we find that he's not terrified at all, but that he's bold in his reason and his persuasion. And I think the reason is this. It's in the story that he already told. See, as he's being questioned there by, by, uh, by Agrippa II, the power and authority of Agrippa II isn't what is in his mind. Rather, it's the power and authority of Jesus. He doesn't care what question Agrippa asks him. What's more important is the questions that Jesus has already asked him on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to go against the goads. And at that point, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, Jesus, the one you are persecuting. You see, there's something that's gelled or congealed in Paul's heart, and it is a conviction about who Jesus is and what Jesus has called him to. And so you could get the whole world to put Paul on trial, and that would not matter to him as much as that moment that he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. See, boldness doesn't just come from something inside that we work up where we say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. It comes from the living Christ living inside of us and having a firm conviction that Jesus died, Jesus rose again, he will come again one day, and the only way to have salvation is by his name. And so Paul is on trial, and he doesn't care because something is so much more important to him. In fact, if you look through the book of Acts, and anytime the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts, the one thing the Holy Spirit always does is he gives the people boldness. Boldness to speak the word. So when people go, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the things that you're asking for is boldness to share the good news of Jesus. You know, as Christians, we're called to be loving. 
We're called to be kind, but sometimes we fall into the trap of being nice rather than being bold. Silence isn't always golden. Sometimes we have to say the truth to people even when it's uncomfortable. Sometimes we have to be bold. Now, I didn't just say be pushy. That's not what I said. What I'm saying is boldness means purposefulness. And for some of you go, man, I, would, I could never be on trial like Paul. Of course not. But you can be purposeful in the people that you invite over and show hospitality to. And hey, as you sit here with dinner, Jesus has saved me. I want to pray to Jesus' name for you. You can be bold that way. Or, or, or maybe in a relationship with someone, you just say, hey, listen, you're like my closest friend, and the most important thing to me besides you is Jesus. Can I tell you about my relationship with Jesus? And you don't have to be the most articulate. You could, you could just share what God has done with you just like Paul has done. But from Paul, we learn bold reason persuasion. The boldness is followed by reasoning. Paul isn't just saying, hey, Agrippa, just believe. In verse 22 through 23, Paul says, to this very day, I have had help from God and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, now we read that and we're like, what's he doing? Paul is reasoning with Agrippa II. Agrippa II is a Jew. Agrippa II believes in the prophets and Moses. And Paul is trying to make a connection with him through reason, saying, you believe in the prophets of Moses. I believe in the prophets of Moses. The prophets of Moses said the Messiah would come. Guess what, Agrippa? He's here. He's trying to make a logical connection Say, think with me here. There's something common about what we believe. I'm not coming to be argumentative. I'm trying to persuade and convince you with reason. I think as Christians, we can get lazy sometimes and not really learn what people believe. Because, I mean, honestly, there's a lot of stuff that people believe, and we can't learn it all, but we can learn something. And we can look for connection points with people so that as we share with them, we're able to reason with them. I remember one time I was getting to know a guy and we were taking a walk in a park and just talking and he kind of, you know, sometimes people do this like, so, so you're a pastor? Like, and I can tell they're like trying to figure out what type of pastor I am, you know? And so then he goes to me, he says, um, so do you believe in hell? And that's kind of like the gotcha question, right? Like if I say yes, they think they know me. And I said, well, why do you ask? And we began to talk about it a little bit. And rather than just saying yes, I said, look, do you believe the world's a broken, evil place? He says, yes. And I said, do you believe that broken and evil people, people who do harm to others, um, deserve some form of punishment? He said, yes. I said, okay, I do too. We have a connection point there. But how in your way of thinking is the world going to be set right when there's evil and brokenness everywhere? And he said, I don't know. And I said, I, I, have a, I have a thought. When Jesus returns, 
he will make all things new. But people who don't know him, who don't want to be part of his restoration project, who don't ask for forgiveness, they are banished forever so that they will never corrupt the new world. And that is hell. And what I got from him was just silence. And I was like, that's kind of what I wanted because I wanted him to think about it differently by using reasoning that he hadn't heard before. Now, it's hard to do that. I'll admit it's hard to do that. That was one of those times where like it worked. But just because it's hard to do doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Bold reasoning. There's so many places that we can connect with people. I mean, everyone believes the world's broken, right? There's a connection point because we as Christians believe the world's broken. Uh, But we can also share life with people. Even as you love people in this moment, it gets their reasoning going. Right now in our, in our society, cancel culture is like winning in a sense, right? You do something wrong 10 years ago, you're out. But Christians love and forgive. You're engaging people's reasoning as they get to know you and they see that you're someone who loves and forgives and doesn't write people off. You're giving people a chance to think about the Christian faith. This is one of the reasons I love Alpha. In a a couple, I think it's uh, not this weekend, but next weekend, Mark's going to be taking some people to do an Alpha training lab. And Alpha is a space where we create where people could come and reason. Like they can think and explore spirituality. They get to talk about their ideas and discuss. Because as Christians, we're called to reason with people. Bold, reasoned persuasion. Bold, reasoned persuasion. At this point in the hearing, Festus is like, had enough of what Paul says. There in verse 24, Festus says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. Like, this is too much, bro. Come on. Now, what we would think here is maybe this is the time to shrink back. Like, this is the time to get passive or pushy. But this is the time exactly where Paul leans in and sees an opportunity to persuade. Sees an opportunity to persuade. And Paul is known for persuading seven times in the book of Acts. It says Paul tried to persuade people. So look what he says in verse 25 through 27. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. It sounds like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the, for the king, he knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced, you can get the next slide. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Now, maybe some of this is a little lost on us, but Paul's persuading. He's saying, uh, I know that the king gets this, and I know that even as I've said these things, that the king believes what I'm saying that the prophets said about the Messiah. And Agrippa's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Paul, you're on trial here, but I think something else is happening here. Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? What he's saying is, Paul, this trial is about you. 
Are you, at, are you trying to get me to become a Christian right now? And Paul has every opportunity to say, well, and kind of sidestep the issue, but he doesn't. In verse 29, he says this, I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. Paul, do you want me to become a Christian? Are you trying to convert me? Whether it's hard for you and easy for you, Agrippa, yes. I want you to become a Christian. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I want you to become like me. Not that I'm great, but I've found Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ has found me. The only thing that I don't want you to be like me in is the fact that I have these handcuffs on and I'm in front of this trial. But did you see the boldness of Paul? He's not shifty. There's no hidden agenda. He sees this as the best thing that has ever happened to him and the best thing that could ever happen to Agrippa and the best thing that could happen to anyone in that courtroom. What would you say? Do you want me to become a Christian? My hope is that today, as you've seen some of the boldness that Paul has through his relationship with Jesus Christ, you would not say, well, but you would say, yes. <laughs> I'm an idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Anybody can get on on this because of what Jesus has done for me. I'm not the smartest pencil, you know, in the pencil box. You can tell by even that analogy that I'm not, but... <laughs> but I just really want you to know Jesus. I want you to see his light. I want you to experience his power. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to have a new identity in him. I want you to have a new belonging, a new way to be human, a new purpose, a new boldness, a new confidence in the face of death. I'm an idiot, but my future is incredibly bright and anybody can get in on this because of Jesus. I want you to become a Christian. My hope is today that your confidence as you share your faith and as you live your faith will be boosted. Not because you're the greatest person, you're the sharpest person, or even the boldest person, but because Jesus Christ lives in you. And when he lives in you, you can't help but having him spill out and out of your heart and out of your life and out of your mouth. So the next time someone says, tell me about your faith. So you can start with this. I'm an idiot. My future is bright and anybody can get it. Amen. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.